five and seven year olds play soccer, you know, when they're little, all of the kids on the soccer field just chase the ball and we don't get very far. It's only later that people start to figure out that they, when they play their positions, you get the ball further down the field. And that, that's sort of how I think about our city government structure on the whole. We get more done and we will make more progress toward an efficient, effective, accountable government when all of these institutional players play their positions and play to their institutional strengths. Hello, welcome to the Cloudcast. I'm Alex Nitkin. I'll be your host this week. Seven months ago, we came up with one of my favorite episodes that we ever recorded in this podcast, and that was a conversation with Joe Ferguson, who was at the time on his way out as the city's inspector general, the person in charge of the office that investigates complaints of waste, fraud, abuse, and misconduct inside city government. If you listened, you may remember Ferguson had a pretty stark diagnosis of the city's police department, the city council, even the basic governance structure of the city of Chicago. And all of that is now on the plate of Deborah Witzberg, who last month was confirmed to a four-year term as the city's new inspector general. I sat down with Witzberg last week in her office at the IG headquarters at 740 North Sedgwick, and we covered a lot of ground. She talked about her sort of origin story and what got her into the messy business of government oversight why it matters that it took more than six months for Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the City Council to confirm her, how she plans to use the office's new power to investigate the City Council, and what it is going to take for the Chicago Police Department to really earn the trust of the people it is sworn to protect. Now, I want to let you know we had a little microphone issue for about the first 10 minutes of the interview, so you're going to hear a little bit of feedback. I apologize for that, but we decided it was important to keep that part of the interview in there because That is when she laid out some really important markers for how we should be thinking fundamentally about police and their role in a just society. So here is my interview with Chicago Inspector General Deborah Witzberg. Well, thank you so much for having me or inviting me here to the the OIG headquarters here in the River North in the shadow of the future Bally's Resort Casino. Um, So you and I have something in common, I think, which is we both grew up in the Northeast and then came to Chicago as adults. I came here for college. What is it that brought you here? I came here when I started law school. I went to Northwestern and I moved here as a 1L. Go Cats. What is it that made you stay in Chicago? I know it's very hard to uproot yourself and stay away from your family and everything that you grew up with. What is it about Chicago that made you think um, this is the place to be? And I know it's not humid days like today. Well, I was going to say the weather, for sure, the weather. Um, well, when I was in law school, I, I went to law school intending to do public interest law, public service of some kind. I was particularly attracted by government service. I wanted to do criminal law, um, both for interest in the subject matter and to work in the service of victims of crime. And so I clerked in the state's attorney's office during school, and then I went to work as an assistant state's attorney coming out of law school. Um, and in that work, I felt as though I saw policing up very close, both at its best and at its worst. I knew and worked with police officers in that job next to whom I was proud to stand in the courtroom. I also saw things go very badly. I saw things go wrong. People get treated unfairly. Um, You know, I, I have often thought in the years since about the fact that as a prosecutor, you have the experience exactly one time of having a police officer on the witness stand, asking them a question and hearing them give you an answer that you know in your bones isn't true. That happens exactly once and then you never forget what that feels like. And I saw all of those things happen. And that left me feeling as though I had had this very up close experience with policing and law enforcement and criminal justice here in Chicago. And that there were 
things I could do with that experience. Is that what led you in part to the Inspector General's office, the idea of righting wrongs and fixing those kinds of situations? Very much so. And I felt very strongly then, as I do now, um, that it is critically important for people doing police reform and, and police oversight work to believe in the good police. And I wanted to be in a place where I could do reform work motivated by the view that the problem with policing and with the Chicago Police Department is not that this is a good system with a few bad people in it. It's that it's a bad system with a lot of really good people in it. And I, I felt then and continue to, to think now that this is a place from which we have the potential to make an enormous impact working from that perspective. And so it's then a much tougher process of changing a bad system to make it better and then the people in it are just how you get there, the incidental part of that? Well, there are certainly, there are certainly bad actors. There are people who break the rules and they, you know, are and should be disciplined. Um, we do a lot of work directed toward the rigor and transparency of the disciplinary system. It's really important to deal with misconduct um, appropriately. The point just is that that's not enough. We are not going to discipline our way out either of what is a police reform crucible or a violent crime crisis. We are not gonna get ourselves out of those situations simply by disciplining people who break the rules. The city council confirmed you as deputy IG for public safety um, almost exactly two years ago, May 2020. I remember the appointment committee hearing was literally right after arguably the most chaotic weekend the city experienced in, in decades um, with civil unrest and looting all over the city. What was the opportunity that you think was presented in that moment? This is something else that you were talking about in that meeting. This is a crisis and it presents a unique opportunity. What window was opening for the city and the police department in that moment? One of self-reflection, among others. In, in the aftermath of events like those, there can be no uncertainty about the need for reform and the urgency of it. No one could have experienced those days in Chicago and come out of them with any doubt that something about our public safety system and apparatus was very, very broken. Um, and, and the report that we eventually published on the events of those days was really an examination of just that, how it was that the city's response was so profoundly flawed and not just the police department, but aspects of the mayor's administration, of multiple systems sort of coming together or not coming together as they should have? That's right. We ultimately, in that report, looked at the city's response, including but not limited to the police department. And where we ultimately landed was that the city's response failed Chicagoans in uniform and out, that among the people um, failed by the way the city responded to those events were frontline members of the police department. October 2021, uh, your predecessor, Inspector General Joe Ferguson, steps down. Um, should we say he ends his term without renewal from the mayor? Uh, that was on October 15th. A couple weeks later, in November, uh, you stepped down as the deputy IG after, what, a year and a half you'd been in that position, um, saying that you you want the top job. You're going to throw your hat in the ring. So you don't get end up getting you don't end up getting confirmed until six months later on April 27th, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mean, my first question is, what were you doing in that time? Did you at least get to like catch up on a lot of TV or yeah, finish Netflix? Um, yeah, I think so. I, a couple of things. 
the way that, and, and this was the first time that these events had played out precisely because as we've talked about, the public safety section was relatively new and the deputy IG for public safety position is relatively new. Um, the way the municipal code is written, the term of the public safety deputy is coterminous with that of the appointing inspector general. And so in fact, when Joe Ferguson's term ended on October 15th, so too did mine as public safety deputy. And the municipal code is silent on what happens thereafter, what should happen in a world in which the terms end and then there is not an incumbent inspector general to either reappoint or not the public safety deputy. And so as a practical matter, the way that played out was that I stayed on after October 15th um, without term protection, um, which is certainly a concern from an independence perspective. The office is simply not built to operate without permanent term protected leadership. But I stayed on um, in my role and then I determined that I would apply for the inspector general position and I made an assessment that because the public safety section under my leadership exercised oversight in part over City Hall and the mayor's office, it did not make sense for me to continue in that role while an applicant for the inspector general position. I wanted to avoid either the appearance or certainly any reality of a kind of conflict of interest, any concern that we would be pulling punches because I had a job application sitting at City Hall. And so I stepped down on November 1st, the, the, or I, I gave notice of my intent to resign on the same day that I applied for this position. Um, and I left that job in November. Um, and as you point out, it, it was many months before the IG selection process resolved. Um, you know, it was a hard decision to leave it seemed very much like the right one to me at the time. I, I, it's been my experience that in oversight, we ask people to do hard things in the, in the interest of doing the right thing all the time, and we should be prepared to do the same. It, it was not without complicated feelings that I left a place that, you know, doing work that I truly believe to be critically important and incredibly urgent. You know, you have brought this up a lot, and so did your predecessor, the idea of this importance of not having that interim just going directly from, you know, properly, you know, duly legally appointed IG to the next one. And that's in part why he gave this three-month warning before his term was up saying, hey, it's really important we don't create a situation where we have an acting IG, which is, of course, exactly what ended up happening. Uh, a couple months ago, um, I want to mention during this interim period, I asked the mayor in a press conference, is it damaging to this office? Is there any harm in leaving it for so long in that transitory state and, you know, without hesitating, she said, no, not at all. They're still all doing their job. They're putting out reports. Um, what what was she missing when she said that? Well, I think, I think it's important to say a couple of things about that. One, she's absolutely right. People here were still doing their jobs. There are, this office is staffed by many very smart and very hardworking people, all of whom continued to be very smart, very hardworking people during this interim period. And so, much to the credit of the folks who were here, good work was still getting done. It is also true that this office, both in the IG position and the deputy IG for public safety position, is set up to run with permanent term protected leadership so that the people in those jobs can do their work without fear that it will um, sort of run at cross purposes with the, the folks who hold the purse strings or hold the reins on who is who is sitting in those seats, right? And so a, as a matter of 
you know, the independence of the office for, for independence sake, it, it shouldn't work. It shouldn't work without term protected leadership. It shouldn't go on, um, certainly not for as long as it did. So in other words, it sounds like what you're saying is that the interim William Marbeck carried out the duties of the office faithfully, but in that situation in general, there might be a temptation for an interim to maybe be, uh, you know, that the mayor has leverage over them in some way or that the powers that be have leverage over them. I think everybody who was here doing their work during that time did so really admirably. I think the office was in a tough spot. There is also the fact that this office has not had a deputy IG for public safety since November, since you stepped down from that role. And now this whole process has to get underway again to fill that, right, with sort of you in consultation with um, the mayor, with the city council. What has this office and by extension, you know, this city lost by leaving that that deputy position vacant for this long and probably longer? Yeah, I, I think... Um Again, the, the people in our public safety section are continuing to do really important work every day. And so um, I, I, I am tremendously heartened by that fact and, and how firmly I know that to be true. But there's a reason that the deputy IG position was created in, in the aftermath of the Laquan McDonald video and its release. And as the city began to imagine what its public safety landscape should look like, the reason the municipal code was written this way is there was a recognition that that position, the, the public safety deputy, played a really important role, played you know occupied an important place on that landscape, and so, you know, what have we lost? I think we have lost again permanent, term protected, long term leadership in that position from someone who can exercise some vision and direction, um, in in the work. In terms of, of what will happen next and what we're going to do about that, I am I am very cognizant of the urgency of filling that position. Um, you know, selfishly, having sat in that seat myself, I think it's an incredibly important. I think it's an incredibly important job. Um, and so we we're you know we're getting going as quickly as we can. The process is a little bit different. It certainly bears some resemblance to the IG selection process, but it is a little bit different. So the public safety deputy. Um, is to be selected. We are to engage a, a national search firm to solicit applicants who meet a set of qualifications set out in the municipal code. Which is similar to how the principal IG search goes. Which is similar, although a, a difference is that the IG selection process requires a committee of members selected both by city council and the mayor's office. There is not not the same requirement with respect to the public safety deputy. Um, the, the deputy is selected and appointed by the inspector general not by the mayor's office, not by the mayor, and then confirmed by the Committee on Public Safety. And so it's, it is a, a similar but slightly different process. So you are bringing the nominee directly to the city council. The mayor does not play a role in that, at least officially. That's right. Will she unofficially? Uh, I imagine we'll follow the process in the ordinance. Ferguson left a lot on your plate when he left last year, including this last big report that the IG's office dropped, like on his literally second to last day before he left, um, which for the first time, I think, ever really took aim at the city council and the way that it works in its committee structure. It said that city council committees are mishandling their budgets by using their committee staffers for award work, meaning that committee chairs have a leg up uh, in constituent service over their colleagues. And meanwhile, there's all this committee work that isn't getting done. He also, at the time I, I talked to him then, he, he gave kind of a wink and said there's more to come on the city council, so watch out for that. 
I mean, what do you see as this office's role to investigate shine light on the city council now that it has this new power to do so? Um, and what kinds of reports and audits should we be expecting to see from this office in that vein? I see our role with respect to city council as now very much aligned and very similar to our role with other city officials and city employees, which is that we we sort of have two hammers to get at any given nail of a problem where, where those two things are our ability to do programmatic assessment and, and evaluation and audit of things like effectiveness and efficiency, like the report you mentioned, whether things are working the way that they should, while also, on the other hand, we have the ability, the ability to investigate allegations of misconduct by individual people. And so we have been and will continue to do both of those things with respect to the city council. We will continue to look for opportunities to make that body more effective and efficient and impactful and transparent, while also holding to account members of that body who abuse the public trust. Is your office investigating Alderman Jim Gardner right now? Well, we're not, I won't talk about specific, um, specific investigations or, or certainly specific officials, um, but, but to say that we are doing and continue to do both, both kinds of work, both the programmatic work and investigative work with respect to the city council. What's next on the programmatic front? If not specifically, then what areas are you looking into? Well, we publish an audit plan every year that, that predicts some of the topics we might cover, and so we certainly have some ideas coming up. Um, but I will also say we're really anxious to hear from Chicagoans about their concerns and where they think our attention should be directed. The nature of this work, right, is that we're never going to look at everything that needs looking. Um, and so this is a, a prioritization exercise, and we're anxious to do that with input from people who are impacted by city operations in one way or another. I think that is particularly urgent and pressing with respect to city council, where I think for, for many Chicagoans, it is their alder who, who is their touch point, their point of contact, their point of entry into city government, access to city services, and so on. And so where Chicagoans have particular concerns about either their alder people or city council and the way it functions, we're really anxious to hear from them. How can they do that? How can they get in touch with you? Uh, many ways, but the easiest of them is our website. It's www.igchicago.org. And on that website, people will find a number of different ways that they can contact us, including anonymously, if that's what people are looking for. Do you have aldermen and their staffers ever coming up to you? And, you know, you've only been in this role officially for a couple of weeks, but has anyone come up to you and, and raised issues specifically with you that they want you to look into? I absolutely count among our critical partners in determining what to look at, city officials and city employees, including members of and, and staff of city council. In some ways, nobody knows better what is broken than the people doing the work. And so when I say that we are anxious to hear from Chicagoans, I certainly intend to include those Chicagoans collecting a city paycheck. Have you heard from a lot of those folks, particularly in the city council? We, we hear from people across city government, including in the city council. So you're not going <laughs> to tell me anything that specifically in city council, any city council functions, or are you going to follow up on the committee work? Absolutely. We do regular follow-ups on our audits. So, so at some interval, and, and the length of the interval depends a little bit on the complexity of the topic and the nature of the recommendations and so on, but at some interval after we publish a, a report with programmatic recommendations like, like the one that you mentioned, we go back and we basically do a status check on whether our recommendations have been implemented or not, and if not, why not? 
um, and then we publish that further follow-up. And that's an additional accountability mechanism. And that's usually, what, six months after, a year after? Somewhere, Somewhere in, in that, that range, depending, depending again, on the topic. topic. Another thing that Ferguson said at the time is the city council isn't doing its job as a co-equal branch of city government to keep the mayor's administration in check, including that um, committees aren't really holding hearings after IG reports come out to sort of drag bureaucrats into the spotlight and say, why aren't you doing anything about this? Um, how do you thread this needle of like fostering a relationship with the city council and particularly with the ethics committee and its chairwoman, um, Alderwoman Michelle Smith, while you are also investigating them at times or at least keeping oversight of them? I think, I think that challenge exists across our work and across city government. City agencies and their employees are, with respect to our work, part subject and part partner. We absolutely are in the position of sometimes investigating those folks um, and their operations, but we also can't do the work of improving city government on our own. We are, with respect to our programmatic work, we are at bottom in the business of making non-binding recommendations. And so the impact of those recommendations is entirely dependent on our ability to work with our, our partners in city government to make things work better. The part of the challenge of the job is that we have to do that while also meeting our obligations to investigate allegations of misconduct. And so that's part of the challenge, certainly with respect to city council, but across city government. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's it's simply our responsibility to do that successfully. So do you disagree with Ferguson or do you agree that the city council is not fulfilling its obligation to be a check on the mayor's office, I guess I want to ask? Well, I think that's a big question. That's a, that's a big structural question about effectiveness. I, I would say one of the ways I think about the whole of our city government landscape here is that we have lots of structures in place, lots of work to get done, and sometimes overlapping areas of access and jurisdiction, for lack of a better word, and um, kind of ownership of issues. We are all best served by everybody playing their position. You know, so I, I often think about the fact that my five and seven year old play soccer, you know, when they're little, all of the kids on the soccer field just chase the ball and we don't get very far. It's only later that people start to figure out that they, when they play their positions, you get the ball further down the field. And that, that's sort of how I think about our city government structure on the whole. We get more done and we will make more progress toward an efficient, effective, accountable government when all of these institutional players play their positions and play to their institutional strengths. City Council has enormous potential to be a very powerful and effective accountability mechanism for exactly the reasons you mentioned. The power of city council to hold subject matter hearings where it calls before the body city officials to answer questions to which the answers might shape legislative policy, that's an enormous power and one which, when wielded appropriately, you know, could really have a positive impact on, on responsive and responsible policymaking. And so we will continue to look for opportunities to, you know, to ensure that all of these institutional players on the landscape are, are playing their positions and playing to their institutional strengths. By just pointing out, hey, you should actually be on this side of the field instead of going over there. Well, I think there'll be, there are lots of opportunities to, to have things work better. Certainly with respect to subject matter hearings, you know, I, I, we, we have done this and I continue to, I look forward to continuing to work with our partners in the city council 
to hold subject matter hearings on our reports whenever possible and appropriate. I think in the limited circumstances in which we have, for example, health hearings in the Public Safety Committee, subject matter hearings on our reports, I think that has been really important um, and really impactful. And so we'll continue to look for every opportunity to do that. In the midst of all this work, rarely, almost never, is the IG's office actually in the position of advocating for a specific ordinance or piece of legislation. So I want to talk about this big police oversight ordinance that the IG's office was really putting its weight behind about a year ago, exactly a year ago. But the issue has since really lost steam. This ordinance would have instructed your office to put together a searchable public database of historic closed misconduct complaints against police officers going back uh, about 20 years. It had really strong backing from the Better Government Association, from Jamie Calvin and the Invisible Institute. Um, your stance and Joe Ferguson's stance at the time very publicly were, we can do this. We need this. Let's let's go for it. The mayor said, I don't know. It sounds expensive and unnecessary. She came back with a counter proposal that you said was watered down. You literally called it incremental pocket change. You said it wasn't really serious. And that ordinance sort of withered on the vine, and, and we haven't heard about it since. Do you intend to revive that legislative effort and give it another push? The effort toward transparency around police discipline uh, and, and records of police disciplinary investigations is a critical transparency effort. Um, I, you know, I, I have talked a lot recently about the notion that the city of Chicago operates at a legitimacy deficit with, his resi- with its residents. That is perhaps no, you know, more acute than anywhere else with respect to the police department. Um, I think that meaningful transparency around police discipline would go a long way toward improving public trust and, and improving the relationship between the police and the community. And so I, I, it's hard for me to imagine more important transparency work than that. Um, the fact of the matter is, despite the fate of that legislative effort, OIG has done and continues to do transparency work around police discipline. We have on our information portal, which is connected to our website, we have a, a lot of information about police disciplinary investigations and their histories, and, and we are actively engaged in doing more of that work. And so, um, you know, I don't know what the fate of the specific legislative effort will be, but we absolutely will continue to push for and create additional meaningful intentional transparency around police misconduct and police discipline. I think, um, you know, I, I said at the time and I continue to think that if the question is why do that work now, the answer is because we haven't done it already. So do you think that there's an opportunity to be a kind of forceful advocate for that or try to force the ordinance back into a discussion or are you more from the stance of if an opportunity arises, if, if Chairman Walgus back or, or Telly Farrow comes back to us, we would join the effort. Um, but you know, we're not going to be the ones who restart that conversation. What we will fiercely, what, what we will be fierce advocates for is transparency and public access to information. There are lots of different ways to make some progress in that direction. Whenever and wherever we can, as loudly as we can, we will advocate for transparency. Continuing to, uh, you know, on the topic of police oversight, let's talk about the CPD gang database. Your office put out a series of really scathing reports, I think going back to 2020, saying that this database the CPD has been using and is still using to this day, um, you're nodding, uh, to document gang members was full of really serious data integrity issues and that that posed a real threat, has posed, I should say, a real threat to 
public safety and to the department's legitimacy in addressing this legitimacy gap you're talking about, the department has said for a long time now it's going to retire the database, it's going to replace it with what it's calling the CEIS, Criminal Enterprise Information System. Um, are they doing enough to make this right? No. I, I think um, the you're absolutely right. We looked, we did a, uh, we, we put out two reports on CPD's so-called gang database, one our original project and then a follow-up, as we talked about, to kind of check in on the status of the city's and the police department's commitments to change. Um, and what we found when we published our follow-up was that, in fact, very little had changed from April 2019, from the time of our original report. 2019 was the first report. That's right. Um, we found that very little had changed and that as an operational matter, the police department was operating and was using its gang affiliation information very much in the way that it had been when we first started looking at the issue. That while work was underway to build a new system, at the time of the publication of our follow-up, no new system was in use. And so we were left in a place where, despite there being efforts in the direction of a new a new approach, nothing was, nothing was in effect. And when we published that follow-up report, the police department made public statements saying that while the new system was not operative then, it would be very shortly, it would be by September of 2021. Um, we have not, as a formal matter, re-engaged. We have not engaged with a new follow-up, although um, I imagine that we will continue to look into whether the department is meeting its commitments to progress and to change with respect to that issue, which I think is a critically important one for lots of reasons, including the ones you mentioned. That That is such a good example of an issue where, you know, we, we need to get away from thinking about reforming the police department and fighting violent crime as alternatives to each other. Those are not mutually exclusive approaches. They are necessary correlates of each other. And so with respect to issues like the gang database, what we need to be doing is reforming the police department so that it is better at keeping people safe in uniform and out. A reformed police department is, in my view, a more effective one. And so with respect to issues like the gang database and like the police department's management of its own records and other similar issues, you know, this is not, this isn't a binary. This is two facets of a critical effort. We need to fix policing so that we can keep people safer. So when rank and file officers say, well, we, we need this, we use this gang database, we're helping, it's helping us figure out who the bad guys are and take them off the street and you reformers are just trying to tie a hand around our back so we can't do that. Why are they wrong when they say that? Frankly, I'm not sure they are wrong. And, and the former prosecutor in me is sympathetic to the notion that there is a law enforcement purpose, or there might be, for some of this, for, for, for intelligence information. The, the position that we took in our original report, which to my mind continues to be the right one, is if the police, if CPD is going to engage in the collection and storage of this information, we have to do it in a responsible and appropriate way. And so we certainly did not make recommendations that the police department stop gathering gang intelligence information. Quite to the contrary, we made recommendations for how to do that work fairly and appropriately if they were going to continue to do so. How is it redounding to the detriment of the police department and its officers for the, the existing historic gang database continue to be used? 
CPD's existing gang data, and in fact, one of the problems is that it's not, the old system is not a database at all. We have gang database in quotation marks in the title of our original report because in fact, it is a smattering of records and types of records and information systems across which the police department spreads various kinds of gang affiliation information. And so to the question about you know how, how and why is that to operational detriment, the old system is one in which there is unreliable data stored in disorganized and unpredictable ways, hard to retrieve, difficult to validate. Um, that is not the quality and the type of information on the basis of which sound law enforcement judgments can be made. You've been talking about how what is at stake here is this legitimacy deficit, this trust deficit between the people of Chicago and their government, particularly between the people and the officers who were sworn to, to protect and serve them. The department's been under a federal consent decree for three years now. It had, has just reached an agreement to extend that federal monitor by another three years, which would bring it to 2027, I think. Um, my question to you is, when will we know, or what will be some of the indicators that CPD has reached what's called substantial compliance with the consent decree, that on a deeper level, um, you know, when will we know when this department has closed that deficit and earn the trust of all the taxpayers who fund it? I think there are sort of two answers to that question. As a logistical, as a legal matter, the monitor makes the determination that these, that the police department or some other unit of city government has reached substantial compliance with their requirements. So there's, there's sort of a legal determination that is made, as I say, by the monitor and by the court. That is, I think, largely separate from the question you're really getting at, which is how do we know if it's working and how long will that take? And that's, of course, a much harder question. Um, I'm not sure that there's a really clear report card for that. You know, the monitor has what amounts to a report card for the legal question of compliance. The question of legitimacy and trust and improvements in legitimacy is much, much harder. Um, and I, I don't think that there's a straightforward answer. I think there are some hallmarks which we should expect to be associated with meaningful progress. I, I do think that a, a more transparent and navigable police disciplinary system is one of those things. I think if we lived in a world in which both members of the community and members of the department had reason to be confident in the fair operation of the disciplinary system, we'd be in a better place, right? We'd be in a place where members of the public would be confident that they could make a complaint if something went wrong in an interaction with a member of the police department, and members of the police department could be confident that they would be treated fairly, they wouldn't be sort of jammed up for political reasons or, or any other. Um, that would go a long way. That, in my mind, would be one of this one of the sort of hallmarks. Um, but I also think this is a question to which no one better knows the answer than the most impacted Chicagoans, and that is the people in Chicago's communities and the members of Chicago's police department. And and we are tremendously uh, anxious to hear from them about their experiences. That leads me to maybe a. a more targeted version of that question, which is when will you know in particular that your office has done its job to affect that police reform that the city has been crying for for so long? Yeah, I, I worry about that a lot. And I think um, if we think about this in terms of that deficit that we've been discussing, that is not that is not a debt that we pay down to zero in the arc of 
a single term or an election cycle or frankly a career. These are generational changes. The, this, the proportion and the gravity of the cultural change that is required here is enormous. And so I think we are in the business of making down payments. We're in the business of making incremental payments against this deficit. Sometimes those are big and sometimes they're small and sometimes they're hard to measure. But that is, in my mind, our responsibility. Speaking of increment, there's one other topic that I want to ask you about, and that's tax increment financing. Let's see how I did that. Um, TIF, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, TIF districts are basically these special taxing districts all over the city that divert uh, new property tax revenues into these special accounts that can be used to pay for capital projects for construction. Super controversial, very little understood. And another thing that Ferguson mentioned at the end of his exit interview is he really wanted to pivot the office to sort of focus more on TIF. Back in January, um, the interim IG, William Marbeck, put out this report saying the city is not putting out enough public information on TIF, um, which it's supposed to do with under state law. What do you want more people in this city, particularly the more than half of us who live in a TIF district, there are 130 something of them around the city, um, and whose tax dollars are being diverted into these kinds of projects, what do you want more people to know about TIF and how it works? I think that's an area where our sort of first line responsibility is demystification. I think TIFs are in a kind of area of city government about which people don't know very much. Um, I think it's kind of not out in the public conversation adequately. There's not enough, not enough transparency into how this works. And it's an area appropriately of tremendous concern where piles of tax dollars as large as these are being moved around. That's, that's you know, an area where people are entitled to information and transparency. And so I view our first priority in that area, as well as in some others, to be that kind of demystification, to help people, you know, to better equip Chicagoans and stakeholders with good information so that we can kind of elevate the level of informedness in, in a policy debate around these. And so, you know, we are doing some of that work. Certainly the audit you mentioned was looking at the question of whether enough public information is available about TIF work. We also have done some data transparency work on our information portal around TIFs. Um, we'll continue to do some of that work so that we can all be um, kind of playing with the same deck in terms of shared information and shared understanding of a really complicated issue. Does this mean putting out more kind of investigative reports and audits about what isn't working in the system? Does it mean creating your own systems within the IG's office to like a searchable map to help people understand it on, in an accessible way? I, I think um, both of those kinds of things. I think we will continue to, to do full-scale programmatic work in that area, and we will continue with the data transparency work that looks a little bit more like the latter of those things you mentioned. Before we wrap up, I do want to talk about the process, loop back to what we were talking about in the beginning of how the IG gets chosen. Are you in conversations right now with the City Council, with the Ethics Committee, about how to change this process for next time? And if so, what what does that conversation look like? How does that how does that crystallize into actual action? Yeah, we I, I am looking forward to our working with partners in city council to address some of the pieces of the municipal code, which I think could frankly be improved to make this process faster um, and and sort of cleaner and more predictable in the next round. I, I think in my mind, the problems are clearer than the solutions in that the length of time that this took was a problem and 
the extent to which the process happened kind of outside of public view is also a problem. And we are very much in conversations internal and otherwise about what might be the best ways to improve that. But I, I think we will be well served by changes to the ordinance process which result in a clearer, more transparent, more efficient process. During this long interim, reporters like me were constantly bugging Alderwoman Smith, Chairman Smith, and saying, what's going on with this? Give us an update. And what she was really saying was, look, I don't really know, and that's how it's supposed to work. It's better when I don't have any direct interference or even knowledge in that system. Um, is she is she getting at something there, or what is being missed when we don't know what's going on behind the scenes? That really is part of the challenge here, is that this is a necessarily independent process, but there is also a transparency mandate around it. And so that's right, that's the balance to strike. We need to sort out a way for this process to be um, appropriately independent of all of the actors over whom the person selected by that process will have jurisdiction, right? Um, But we also need this to happen in the light of day. This of all things, the selection of the inspector general of all things, cannot happen in, in a dark corner of city government. And so how that gets brought out to light are just things we'll have to figure out? Those are the things that we are thinking about. And then those are the solutions which, you know, at least internally here, we're kind of trying to think through. Um, what else haven't I asked you that you want people to know about yourself and the job that you've gotten yourself into? <laughs> um, you know, maybe just to say that I believe that Chicagoans are entitled to an accountable and transparent government in which decisions are made in the light of day. And above all, it's the work of this office to do everything we can to make our city look more like the one its residents deserve. And I'm really glad to be back and I'm anxious to get to work. Deborah Witzberg is the Inspector General for the City of Chicago, confirmed on April 27th through, uh, for a four-year term through uh, to 2026. As I do math in my head, thank you so much for coming on the Cloudcast. It's been really, uh, it's really been a pleasure and I hope that we can check back with you again soon. Absolutely, thanks for having me. You can go into the Office of the Inspector General's website at igchicago.org where you can see all their latest reports and a lot of really handy interactive dashboards on everything from TIF districts to the city budget to police staffing levels and misconduct complaints. And yes, you can also enter complaints there about anything you think is wrong with city government or any ideas on what the office should investigate next. This episode of The Cloudcast was produced and edited by me, Alex Nitkin. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks.